The title of this evening's talk is You Are Buddhaful. <laughs> it's not original. I have found you to be beautiful, to actually be beautiful, um, beautiful beings. And I, I see that the effects of practice uh, reveal, help us to uh, reconnect with our, with our beautifulness. And as uh, Galway Cannell put it in his poem called St. Francis and the Sow, uh, sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely. So a lot of what we've been doing here is, uh, whether you knew it or not, is retelling yourself uh, that you are lovely not really in words, but in the momentary direct experience of your being, at least hopefully revealing to you that your essential nature, your natural being, uh, is, um, is beautiful, is indescribable. And at least to allow you, the practice can allow you to see the difference between that intrinsic nature, Buddha nature, beautiful nature, the difference between that and the story of lack that plays through your mind. The story of insufficiency, the story uh, based on the past, as one of my teachers, I think I, re I mentioned this the other night, he says, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. And, and Hafiz put it this way, he says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and go there to do a strange wail and worship. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. We have moment by moment been uh, stopping, stopping, referencing our self to the past and then the projections of the past onto the imagined future. We've been brushing, slowly brushing the dust of memory so that we could all know for ourselves the clear mirror that, that we are. Last night when Leela was beautifully describing her translation for the hindrance of desire, she called it lack. And that feeling of lack is based on the idea, uh, I am lacking. And we may not think there's much in those three words that may float through our mind, maybe even not even verbally. But what we register is the feeling of lack. 
But it all starts with a, with a view. I am lacking. Now, as I sit here with all of you, I can tell that if you, on present evidence, you're not lacking anything. But that, that, those words float through our mind. Those three words, I'm lacking. And just try it on for a minute. I'm lacking. And try to relate it to whatever in your life feels like it's lacking. And so what you've done is you've just gone to the past to do a strange wail and worship. And once you, when you, when you take on that idea, I'm lacking. Notice how, what happens to your body. You feel any, you feel open and expansive, wonderful. Do you feel intimately corrected, connected to your surroundings? <laughs> or do, does your body respond to that little idea? Our body responds by getting tight. And, and that tight produces an alarm. That's, it's a feeling tone. It produces an alarm, a little tension. And that tension says, get me out of lack. And then our mind projects what it is that I have to have in order to end my lack. And before you know it, following those three words I'm lacking, we have entered into this profound drama of ending lack. And in those very following those three words outward, we have, uh, we have become blinded to our Buddhafulness. We have fallen into a kind of delusion. Whatever that thought of, I, I am lacking, whatever your version of it, it describes someone who does not exist. It, it describes an imaginary version of you. Now, that is not to say you don't exist. As we've come to feel very intimately, you exist without your, without this, I'll use the, the phrase that the Buddha used again, without this fathom long body with its, uh, inner, with its perceptions and inner sense, there's no world, there's no experience. You are here, and your sense of being able to hear, smell, taste, touch, depends on you being here. And you express life in a very unique and individual way. So when, we say, when I say, I am lacking, describe somebody who doesn't exist, it is, it is that virtual version of you and the feelings that go with it that describe someone, uh, the imaginary you. So, We'll go back to this again, but let's play with this a little bit. Try the thought again, I'm lacking. Just say it to yourself. 
And anybody willing to say what version of lacking is your top experience of lacking? If anybody's willing to speak out loud. I'm lacking confidence. I'm lacking work competency. <laughs> I'm lacking a needed. So it's one thing to state something that may, may be true. But that truth, that, that, that which may be true about your situation, cannot capture your true nature, your beautifulness. But often, we associate our situation with our worth, with, our, with the, whether or not we have sufficiency. And it leads to a feeling, I, ha- I am lacking. And unless I, I get one of those things, I cannot be beautiful. I cannot be whole. So just for the sake of experimentation, let's just take the short version, I'm lacking. And rather than do a search, which we often do, we do a search into the historical past in order to find out why we feel that we're lacking. And we all have come to a feeling of lack and this idea of ourselves very innocently. We've gotten, we've been either traumatized or deprived or taught a lot of uh, misinformation. We've been bound in our cultural views or religious views. We've all, we've, we've, had all kinds of non-personal influences that have, that have fed into the feeling of, I'm lacking. It's very innocent. But what we can discover in our practice that is that I am lacking describes, again, I'll say it, describes the story of you, not the you that is indescribable, indescribable that sits here. So all through this retreat, through moments of mindful attention, we've been trying to invite you to discover what and who you are on present evidence. And this, word, this expression, present evidence, I borrowed from a a wonderful teacher named Douglas Harding, but it really speaks to uh, the difference between uh, the way that we usually define ourselves and uh, what's actually happening. The truth is, even though there's been a major drama over these last five days, hasn't it been? It's been a wild ride. The truth is, nothing's really happened. No, there's a lot that's happened. But what's really happened, if we look at it from a moment-to-moment unfolding, there have been only six things that happened the whole time. 
There has been seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, these things arising, being known, passing away. That is the totality of our life. That's the totality of, of what we are in any moment. Now, when we are, our attention settles into the realization of that level of simplicity that's happening in every moment, in spite of our mind's capacity to dramatize that, as our mind settles into that simplicity, we also begin to have that sense that uh, things aren't in this moment, even if they're painful. They're, one, they're workable. Two, they're, they're not as bad as I think they are. I know that I can hear this moment. I know that I can smell, I can taste, I can feel. So we begin to touch reality, which is different than the, again, the version of ourselves that often playing in our mind. So I am lacking is a few steps removed from the six doors of perception, from the simple reality of the six senses. Yet, if it goes unnoticed, it spawns, as I said before, it spawns a very profound drama of searching for the end of lack. And we can literally wander a long time, a lifetime, many lifetimes, looking to fill that hole that has been generated not by not by any ultimate truth, but it's been generated by a view of reality. The Buddha called this view Sakaya Ditti, self-view. The way we are born into a view of ourselves, moment by moment. And once we're born into that view, then we have to live that life. Unless, of course, we come to recognize we're Buddhaful. Come to recognize the difference between your direct experience, and that story that your mind is telling. So as James J. Audubon put it, many of you have probably heard this before, he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. <laughs> we are used to consulting the field guidebook. We're used to consulting the past to define ourselves. And so our meditation practice, moment by moment, begins to cut through that pattern of memory that makes that whole sense of lack feel real and see that in the moment, lack is just another changing condition. As Ajahn Sumedho says, just like another sand grain of the Ganges River. Maybe a painful one, but that's all it is. Lack is lacking. When Leah said it's lack, it doesn't mean I'm lacking. It means lack has arisen as a state of mind based on a view. And if that is, it's felt, that very feeling, rather than going out in search for the end of lack, falling right back into the feeling of lack, it opens out into the, you could call it the ground of presence. You're back in beautiful. You're back in the, in the Buddha fields. You're back in the, in the pure land. 
where not one person here can find anything, if they don't consult their memory, cannot find anything truly lacking. And yet, innocently, we overshoot this. So another way of illustrating this is, I am lacking. We see what it's made of these three words. They can, it can have enormous power if they go unnoticed. But then when we really look at them, it's got three words, I am lacking. We can just take the word lacking and let's get rid of it. And what are we left with? I am. I already feel better. Ha, <laughs> I am. There's nothing wrong with I am. There's nothing wrong with amness. But somehow, in, in our Dharma views, we think we somehow have to get rid of amnes and inus and all that stuff. It, it's not about getting rid of it. It's about seeing, seeing it for what it is, a view. So we take this and we get rid of, for a moment, we get rid of the, instead of doing a historical search on why I'm lacking, although that can be interesting and sometimes we really need to in order to heal some places that some of the, the wounds that helped spawn so much of that conviction. But for, our medita- for meditative purposes, for our spiritual inquiry, we look directly at the nature of that idea. That's the unique thing about mindful attention. It wants to see things absolutely in their bare reality, not filtered by memory, hope, expectation, things just the way they are. It's an expression, yata bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment. So we say, I am lacking. We've removed the lacking. Then for the sake of our experimentation, let's remove the am. We're left with I. And then knowing we can pick up the I anytime, let's, let's drop the I for a moment. And notice how you feel. So isn't it true that in this moment, just free of this idea, or seeing this idea for what it is, at least for me, that there is automatically an increased sense of intimacy, an increase of sense of connection with, I feel more in this room. I feel more connected to everything in this room. I can't find the dividing line between me and everything in this room. The, the, the dust of memory has been cleared a little bit. And I can sense, free of this idea I'm lacking, nothing's missing. As one of my teachers used to say, everything's been granted. All wishes are fulfilled. How far did we have to go to find that? As Rumi put it, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. 
ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So regardless of our life situation, we are at our core. You are at your core. You are you can discover in this very moment at your core, you are immaculate, pure, open, without limits, color, shape. You're beyond description, whole, whatever you want to call it. I'm curious, anybody, what are you experiencing right now after your last thought of lack has passed and before the next one has arisen? Anybody willing to say what you notice? Please. Um, well, it's a little bit like, what do I do? I've been lacking my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> I've been lacking my whole life. How do I be? That's part of the mystery. That's part of the discovery. Thank you for saying that. Anyone else, what do you notice? Affirmation. Affirmation. Lightness. Clarity. Clarity. Smile. What? Smile. Smile. Sweetness. Sweetness. Empty. Empty. Ease. Ease. Childlike. Childlike. Uh, I'm enough. Now, what did we do? <laughs> There's no trick involved here. All we did was suspend one of our, what I call, and this is not original, we suspended our cherished beliefs about ourselves. As there is one Mahayana Sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra, and it's got a little pithy line in the middle of it that says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So at the root of whatever your situation or view, in the midst of it, there is this, as Camus put it, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. However, (laughs) for our purposes, doesn't another thought suddenly arise? (laughs) Uh, It reminds me of Kala Rinpoche. He says, you are the Buddha. Why don't you know this through and through? He says, because of the thought that you're not the Buddha. (laughs) The thought that you're a separate individual. Uh, But once you've seen this thought, one time, seen through this illusion, then you can continue to refer to the ever-present openness and clarity. Some people said clear, open, light, sweet. But a thought does arise, and it arises again and again. And part of our mindful attention is to begin to notice 
what our thoughts are doing to make that profound shift from simply being carried along and living out that extended that existence, that birth that we enter into. We're literally born into an imaginary life of the one who's lacking. And when the Buddha sat down at the, under the Bodhi tree, he, he saw the same I-making and my-making in his mind. He saw Sakaya Ditti playing itself out. I don't deserve this. Maybe I should go have some ice cream. (laughs) Or Sufi. (laughs) Sufi. (laughs) No, I can't imagine the Buddha talking about Sufi dancing. (laughs) But the more he paid attention, as I talked about the other night, the more he saw that there was no I to be found in in the flow of his sensations as, as identified as much as our identity is bound up in our feelings, there was no I to be found in the feelings. And then the thoughts, the self-views, no I to be found in that either, other than as a little thought form that was as transparent and empty as a, like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. Insubstantial. And he saw that being born into that into that view was suffering. Being born into that case of mistaken identity is dukkha. And then, you know, his mind opened and he saw that he was beyond. He said, there's a field of experience beyond this entire field of mind and matter. It's neither this world nor another, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This is neither arising nor passing away nor something else. This is the end of suffering. That was the, one of his utterances. But the next one was considered his song of awakening is through many births, and perhaps you have a different understanding of birth as I talk about this, we're born into, into these stories about ourselves every moment. It's like a little mini lifetime. He said, through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house again. Your rafters are broken, the ridge pole destroyed, which means uh, the defilements are, are seen through, the belief in self is destroyed, the ridge pole delusion. Mind has gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation it has come. So craving, again, lack. To lacks cessation, it has come. So he said, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. So the key is to see the way the house of self is built. To see the rafters, to see the ridgepole, to see the insecurity of the way that we build a sense of self, moment by moment. And this is, this is the direction, in some way, of being able to, for ourselves, have, see the difference between the bird and the field guidebook to develop confidence that we are uh, 
not, um, we are not lacking anything. As I think it's Rumi in one of his poems uh, called Tending Two Shops, he says, live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. He says, you have eyes that see from that nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller, checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the shop that you're not selling fish hooks anymore, that you are the free swimming fish. So he says, live in the nowhere where you came from. It says, you need to see the, the, the version of you that's always measuring. So one of the ways that we continually, moment by moment, create this imaginary version of ourselves, the false view of ourselves, is certain tendencies of mind. And we've alluded to them a lot over the course of the retreat. One of them that is probably the most persistent and uh, both subtle and tormenting is what the Buddha called uh, mana or conceit, otherwise known as for us as the comparing mind. Now the comparing mind describes someone who doesn't exist. Remember, it describes a version of ourselves that, um, that can be measured. Remember that, that shop that's always measuring this way, this checkmate, this way, that. It's always measuring. The comparing mind comes in three, three basic forms. And it comes in the form of, of ideas, of thoughts, of self-views. And one of them, the Buddha called Atimana, which is the uh, superiority view. Those moments that when we compare and feel superior to another. Any of you ever have those? <laughs> Equally delusive, I don't know if that's the right word, but equally blinding is what he called mana, which is the equality view, making that view that we're, we're constantly making sure we're equal to someone else. Still a kind of measuring. And then there is the uh, amana, which is the inferiority view. I am less than, the feeling of less than. And this tendency of mind, even though it describes somebody that doesn't exist, is very easily, very quickly identified with as me and mine. And we believe it. And our body crashes. I can, be feeling, I can be feeling wonderful, connected with reality, and a thought comes into my mind. I see someone do something that, that uh, I appreciate. All of a sudden, that, that little thing that that person did becomes all about me. I couldn't do that. Or they can do that better than me. And I go from this vast openness it's open-heartedness to a feeling of, I'm quite small, and I better work hard so that I can be big again. 
when really nothing has happened except the thought, I'm less than, went through my mind. We do this every day, a thousand times a day. And the same with the Atimana, the superiority view. And it knows no bounds. We compare to impossible ideals and always find ourselves lacking. And it's very easy to adopt in the spiritual uh, arena where there's all kinds of idealized models of the of perfect uh, equipoise, perfect quietness of mind, perfect openness of heart, perfect generosity. We have even this whole list of perfections. So it's inevitable that there's some kind of comparing, but we often take our, the comparing mind as me rather than simply being able to see it as the comparing mind. So we have to be able to notice the comparing mind. And this is something to carry on into our daily life uh, to, because we can actually see it in others, we can see it in ourselves, how much the comparing mind trying to keep up, trying to measure, becomes the engine that drives so many actions. It really knows no limits. It's, it's, and you have to have a sense of humor about it. And this poem, I think, captures having a sense of humor about the ideals that we compare ourselves to. This one I picked up off the internet. You've probably seen it going around. If you can start the day without caffeine or stimulants, if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, you're probably the family dog. We have to, we must have a sense of humor about our, um, our meing and mying, our ego making, our selfing, and n not turn it into a problem. Because otherwise, as my friend uh, Wes says, otherwise it's not funny. <laughs> because we are, we are, our tendency of mind, our human nature, it's not just you. You're not the only egotistical one here. You're not the most egotistical one here. <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> we have the capacity to take anything and build a monument to ourselves about it. <laughs> Even the most impersonal thing. A mind becomes quiet, and then I have a quiet mind. <laughs> Walking slowly, as my friend uh, James Barrows, who also the teacher, he noticed when he was doing walking meditation, slowly, and if somebody came, came by, he noticed that his posture would increase, <laughs> and he started having a mental note for the selfing that was going on there, and he called it looking good. <laughs> But this little snippet that 
from the internet uh, that um, this tells you the limit to which people will go to, uh, to measure their, to fall into mana, into conceit, into the comparing mind. In June, this is from 2002, in June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote four hours, 33 minutes, that was the name of him, which had 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for rich, ripping Cage off, <laughs> but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered. Said Mike Batt of the Planets, mind is, much, is a much better silent piece. <laughs> I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> or the one about the rabbi. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. <laughs> the Seamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian, said, look who thinks he's nobody. So being able to notice the, the comparing mind can help prevent us from spinning endlessly astray in, in samsara, in that cycle of, of trying to, uh, to find peace in a, an insecure pr process of measuring. Unfortunately, the comparing mind has never led to peace, except until it's gotten to the point where our mind is exhausted. This is from Kabir. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants its to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. And this is what we in our practice can begin to see through and even have a sense of humor about.
the eyeing, meing, and mying, the creating this idea of self. And then perhaps experiencing the joy of seeing it fly. Because if you, if you land in this view that's based on the past, you, your body tenses, we suffer. Think of the, the words of, uh, who was it, Blake? It's, he talks about joy, you know, that we can get very happy with our feeling of inflated and pleasures, and, but as soon as we hold on to it and build an identity around it, suffer. He says, he, she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy, but she who kisses the joy as it flies Lives in, etern- in eternals, lives in eternity's sunrise. So it's the same as we let these self-views be known to us. So one way that we fall into self-view is, is around the comparing mind. Another is uh, creating constant views of ourselves in terms of our views and opinions. What's right? What's wrong? Who's right? Who's wrong? And so much tension builds from the attachment to views and opinions. And yet, it's something that we can actually see. We can see the felt experience of it, get some space around the comparing mind, the, the, the mind that is building an identity around views. And the same with the identity that gets built around around getting more stuff, or having more, becoming more. As Nagarjuna put it, we need to be able to pay attention to this process of what the Buddha called bhava, or becoming. This is his poem called Someone, from uh, from Nagarjuna, who's considered by some the founder of Mahayana Buddhism. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So it may not seem like you're ending anguish by moments of lifting, moving, and placing by moments of eating and knowing you're eating. But you're actually training your attention to step out of this endless cycle of impulsivity, of being driven 
by, uh, by ignorance, by what the Buddha called wrong view, taking everything, making everything into me and mine. And so with those hindrances that Leela spoke about, we recognize that lack is lacking. It's a changing condition like the weather. Aversion, I'm not aversive. Aversion is arising. It's, it ha- it's taking its own nature. Restlessness and agitation are occurring. I'm not restless and agitated. That's a way of talking about it, but the reality of it is it's, a, it's an impersonal process of changing conditions, changing experiences, happening all by itself, completely unbidden. The same with doubt and the story of doubt. The same with even torpor and, and the resistance to experiencing uh, the heaviness that comes from not wanting to experience things. All of that is an impersonal process. It's just happening. And as we practice, we see more and more the, the, um, the flywheel, the waterfall of thoughts that flow through our mind are completely unbidden thinking themselves. No self, no me, no mine. Just what there is, a thought bubble. Not personal in the way that we ordinarily think of them. And if we are able to see a thought as a thought, as Dujim Rinpoche says, doesn't a thought suddenly arise? He says, if that thought is recognized for what it is, it's it's understood as just the display of life. It's just another expression of life. A thought is to the mind like a sound is to the ear. It's, it's inseparable from, from the knowing of it. Not a problem. And when, that's, when it's noticed, you're liberated. But if that thought goes unnoticed, it spreads out into ordinary thinking. And this he called the chain of delusion. We are then born again and again into the imaginary version of ourselves and then have to have to go through all the struggles of, of being the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean and overlooking what my teacher used to say, the fact that you are, I am, we all are, neck deep in grace, already immersed in the very thing that we've been searching for. So we discover that grace in moments here, but we practice again and again. We may be perfect just as we are, but we can see that as much as our mind is habituated toward falling into delusion, we can use a lot of improvement. And so we practice to keep brushing the dust of memory, keep, keep, um, keep sweeping the garden, keep noticing. Why do we keep noticing? Why do we need to see through the self-illusion? Because Seeing through the self-illusion. Seeing through the self-illusion is seeing through the illusion of other. This is what makes it possible to us feel, us to feel at home in the world, to unleash our love and compassion, our caring. When I'm caught in my internal drama, in that imagined version of myself, it's the opposite of love. I'm looking for a poem that I, I must read right now. But since I didn't know how this would go, I just 
hang out silently for a moment here. You can do that now. You're all practiced. <laughs> this is how Hafiz put it. Admit something. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say, everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. <laughs> Still, though, think about this this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye? That is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. So we don't do this for ourselves. We do this and dedicate this to the unleashing of our caring so that we can be the one with the full moon in our eyes. We are the one with the full moon in our eyes. And yet we think, as, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, he says, you are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. And then share that with others. So I think this is a good time to transition. So I'd like to close with a poem from Derek Walcott called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. May all beings unleash their love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. May all beings realize their true nature. Thanks for your kind attention. Have about 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.